As I was walking through the books of Malachi and Joel, and had mentioned that a lot of times in reading through the Bible, the minor prophets have worn me out, um, just because it's at the an end of a long string of prophets, and you're just kind of going, how much longer can this go on? And yet, there is value in the books, and I'm realizing if I struggle with them, how much more the rest of you? And I've had some of you tell me, you know, I'm not sure I've even read these guys, and, and when I did, it was awful too. And, and so I, this summer, I kind of intend to, to pick off some of these. And uh, I kind of how this goes depends on how I go after these. Uh, this one has nine chapters. Uh, we're not going to get through it all today. I certainly don't want to spend the whole summer on it. Uh, and so I'm just not exactly sure how far we're going to get. So I will... <laughs> I was going to look at the clock, but that doesn't mean anything to me. When I, when I get tired, I'll quit, or when it feels like you've shut off, I'll quit. But I'm just going to burn through a batch of slides today, and uh, we'll, we'll pick off some of this book, and hopefully it'll have a little more meaning to you, uh, should you read it again in the, in the near future. So Amos uh, is a shepherd, but his writing is not simple. You can... Say, well, it doesn't, you know, Shepherd, what kind of training would he have had? He uses a number of literary devices. He refers to things that we're not necessarily familiar with. And he takes on issues that are actually big issues. And so it's appropriate that we would look at it. And truthfully, the better we understand the culture of that day, the history of it, and even the setting, the more that we'll glean from the book. It's just a question of how, how deep and how long do we want to keep at it, so to speak. So my goal is to kind of give you a summary, although I don't know how well I can race through it. Okay? So that's where I'm at with it. Um, so he's a prophet. He's bringing a message that is largely unwanted by the people that he's presenting it to. And he's also addressing, in a sense, the punishment or judgment of God on different nations and particularly the people of Israel. So he's looking around him at the, the nations or city-states that are close to them, and he's saying, God is going to do this. And he uses a phrase, he says, the Lord will not look away. Now in our translations is. I won't revoke punishment, or I use that for myself, I use it interchangeably with judgment. I'm, I'm not going to withhold judgment, you know, because of what you've been up to. And, and so the idea of God looking on something is that when God sees, he acts. And so he's not going to turn away, he's, he's going to look at this, and in this case, it's going to come across as punishment. People in, the, in Scripture will also cry out to God and say, you see me, so you've got to do something. You see my sorrow or you see my struggle, so I know that if you're watching, you're going to do something. So in the same way, 
the writer uses this and says, if you see this, you're going to do something. So he, he picks out different nations around them, and, and he starts with them, and then he gets back to the, the, the groups of Judah and Israel. I remind you that Israel had become a nation and had gathered a, gotten a land, and then shortly after its founding, they split into two. There was a civil war. They became two kingdoms. One is called Judah. One is called Israel. Judah was the one that had Jerusalem and stayed um, more true, not entirely, but more true to the dictates of the Lord. Israel, on the other hand, kind of wandered away quicker. What you need to know about Israel, though, is that they were in a wealthier region. They had great pastures and great agricultural opportunity, but they were also along the trade routes and so they, there was more trade going on for them. And so they became wealthier. And it's in the nation of Israel or in the portion of Israel. I know it's confusing because of the, the names Israel. We want to lump it all together. And, and yet at that time, the Israel of that time, that's where Amos is prophesying. And he's actually one of the earliest of the Old Testament prophets. So... Roughly 1,000 B.C.s when David lived. Then you have about 100 years of the nation really flourishing. Then you have its civil war. And you have some things back and forth with Assyria and, and others that come in and they'll dominate for a while, then Israel will do well for a while. In this particular setting, which is around 760 B.C., so again, does it mean anything to us time-wise? Well, not so much. But in that setting, Israel, the littler one, or the one of the two, is doing extremely well. And yet, Amos comes along and says, ah, this isn't going to last. Now, you can imagine how grateful everybody would be to hear that. And you can also imagine when he starts talking about the nations around them, we're kind of going, you mean somebody here might be prophesying about Canada or Mexico or, you know, yeah, it was taking place. So I, I wanted to, to convey a couple things. There's some conflicts of thought in, in our culture where we go, well, obviously we've been blessed of the Lord. Look at the affluence of our nation. There is a measure of truth to that, but it isn't a guarantee that everything is in tune, so to speak. And so in this day, the, he's talking to an affluent people in comparison to those around him, but it does not necessarily mean that the blessing of the Lord is resting there. Secondly, you can be unaware but not innocent. In other words, you can be doing things that are inappropriate and God frowns upon, but the, and it, it, you, you may not even be aware of such a thing, but it doesn't mean that you're innocent. How many times have you been in a relationship when someone unaware is doing something that really bothers you, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't bring harm, right? Or uh, you've done it yourself. Or somebody come to you and say, that really hurt my feelings. And you go, well, I didn't know it bothered you. On a larger scale, 
even nationally, there's this thing of you can be walking along as a people group and assume that everything's fine. That doesn't mean that you're at peace with God. In regard to this nation of Israel, they had wandered off into some other forms of worship and things, and very specific, very religious. And so what we need to to read out of this book also is that you can be very religious but not on the same page with God. And your worship isn't necessarily being accepted. Here's a verse I want to read to you before I delve into this. In this, uh, in this book, in the third chapter, he goes through seven rhetorical questions, and the answer to each of those questions is no. Okay? Not too complicated. He gets to the last question, and he asks, does disaster come to a city except unless the Lord has done it? And the rhetorical answer would be no. So a few years ago, I remember the big hubbub when New Orleans was Florida, flooded? Forded? <laughs> flooded. Flooded. That's the word I want. Um, remember the Christian conflab? Would God bring judgment on New Orleans? Would God, you know, historically it's been known as one of the most profane cities of our country, right? But the, the argument is, how would a loving God do something like that? Of course a loving God's involved. What do you think? You know, and the, the arguments that went back and forth. Amos would, would say, of course he's involved. Now, to what degree? What, uh, that's too wonderful information for me. I don't know. And I'm not interested in going back and rehashing all of that. There were some very great articles written on it by both sides. <laughs> that said... What I want to do then is start wandering through this book. And uh, so, okay. Word of Amos, the shepherd. He says this is happening in the days of Uzziah and Jeroboam. So he, the, the mention of the two kings puts it at a specific date and time, two years before the earthquake. So again, there's a, a very specific point in time when he's prophesying and and, uh, you know, the guys that know this stuff will say that's somewhere around 767 B.C. or 763. You know, it's, it's in that window. So 750 years before Christ, roughly. That said, he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So he says, God hollers. <laughs> and he says, you know, the pastors that he, you know, he's a shepherd, right? He says, it withers. And Carmel just, you know, is it, I guess I have them backwards, mourn and withers. Okay. So again, what is, what is a roar? You know, if you, you associate it with an animal or you associate it, it's, or even a person, it's kind of a, a declaration of war, right? Or it's a warning. It's a, it's a, uh, a say, we're going to war. You know, it's back off. Um, when, when we were in Malawi, uh, we were on this 
thing, and we saw two hippos going at it for a long time. The amount of jostling back and forth with the roaring was amazing. You know, what, what were they doing? They're fighting, and they're letting each other know, you better not mess with me. I'll kill you. You know, and, and that was, it was that intense. And, and so, in a sense, when God roars in this setting, it's, it's not a positive thing. It's not an exciting, it, well, it would be very exciting, but it, it's not a, a good excitement. But that's kind of the, the setup for this particular book. Um, Carmel itself, you know, what do we know about it? Well, Saul had set up a monument to himself there. Elijah had had the, uh, the confrontation with the prophets of Baal. It is, it is like a high point of a very wealthy region and a, a grand pastures and that kind of thing. So it's a focal point, and its significance has been noted spiritually, so to speak, both good and bad. And so it's, it's this... This focal point, you know, just like when you, when you look and you see a, a, a mountainous rise or something, it's, it's a special place. And it's been treated that way for a long time. And, you know, other mentions of it, you know, remember Nabal? David ended up marrying Nabal's wife after he died. But he, he was from Carmel area, and he was a very wealthy man, it was declared. So again, this would all have been known by the people that it was being written to. For us, well, it's just kind of lost history unless somebody goes there. But anyway, that said, other prophets are also involved in saying, Carmel's going to have trouble. There's, it's going to be withering away. And you see that out of Isaiah and Nahum. Now, the next thing that I want to hit, because yeah, I'm racing through this book, we're already up to verse 3 or 4. Uh, he uses a writing device, say, for three things and then for four. Now, that's totally foreign to us. But it's a, it's a, a thing of repetition and a declaration of excess or exceeding, a, a statement of exceeding things. And so... Eight times he's going to use this phrase in the next chapter or two just to, to call out different nations and say, for three, no, four times this takes place. And we're going, three or four, I, I can't find three or four things here. Well, you're not supposed to. It's just like saying, you know, um, I like this. No, I really like this. You know, he's saying for three, no, for four. It worked for them. Okay? Um, we find that writing device used in Proverbs. In chapter 30, a man named Agar is writing that chapter, and three different times these three and four things are posted. You know, in the first one, he says, uh, three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I don't understand. He goes into the way of an eagle in the sky, a serpent on the rock. He says, a ship on the high seas, you know, just, and then a way of a young man with a virgin. He's got that dating thing. It's too amazing. Um, again, 
different terms than what we're used to, right? There's another one that he uses a little bit later. Um, I skipped the middle one because it was that much more different. But uh, he says, poor things really know how to strut. You know, he says, uh, you've got the lion, king of beasts. You got the rooster, goes around. He says, uh, you have the ram, the, the, the male goat, or you have the king with his army. You know, they, they know how to walk. So again, it's a 3-4 connector. Now, in this particular passage of Amos, he uses that, but he's saying your transgressions are bad. No, they're really bad. You know, the sin that you've walked into, it's wrong. No, it's really wrong. And so that's the emphasis each time. And then this declaration also follows in each of these passages. It says, I will not revoke my punishment. And again, the, the actual is, I won't look away from this. And then in most of these, he also uses a phrase saying, I will bring fire to this place. Now, I want to hit that just a bit as well. Yeah, we might get through part of the first chapter in this summary. I'm not good with that, but <laughs> I'm going to deal with it. In Scripture, there are over 400 mentions of fire in relationship to God. And so you have the, in the beginning, you have uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, rained down fire and sulfur on the villages when he destroyed them because of their wickedness. You have Moses uh, calling down fire, and that appears almost like lightning because you thunder and, and such, and, and hail, and, and just, you know, during the plagues on Egypt. You have, um, in Exodus, the glory of the Lord peering as fire over Mount Sinai. And so you have variations of that, but it's all connected to God. In the Psalms, you have him saying, he is before him as a devouring fire. There's an associating with that, or Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all to the ground. So again, fire has, has a numerous meanings, but it usually is associated with a destruction or a, 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 a undoing, whatever. And it's just like, you know, you throw a piece of wood on the fire, and a little while later, all that's left is ash. And so that association with the fire god has numerous meanings, but it's still attached to that. Listen to this from Jesus. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. We don't usually spend too much time thinking about that portion of his role, do we? But that's, in a sense, future of what is implied of what he will participate in. Hebrews, in, in referring to the Old Testament passages, says, Our God is a consuming fire. We know that at the end of time, when the judgment takes place, the deeds that are done in righteousness withstand the fire. It's like a purification. So fire in that sense is like, like gold being refined. But then also, whatever hasn't been done in righteousness just becomes ash. He says in 2 Peter, the heaven and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. Okay, so... 
We've gone through the 3-4 idea. We've gone through the idea, I won't turn back or I won't revoke. We've also known that in each of these, there's going to be a declaration of fire, okay? 1, 3 through 5, he takes on Damascus. This is the first one. He says, for 3 and for 4, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with a threshing sledges. So I'll send fire upon the house of Hazel. Now, I'm not going to try to go through all these names. But the idea, he says, a threshing sledge. Again, those are things we're not used to anymore. But it used to be that they would carry a, uh, like pull a heavy weight and a, a, like a grindstone over, over grain so that the, the chaff would be broken off. And he says, I'm just going gonna, gonna to grind you down, so to speak, because of the way, or because you ground down Gilead, excuse me, because you ground down others, he says, I, I'm going to treat you with fire. And so he, he takes on Damascus, one of the areas around them, and says, this is a judgment toward you. The second one is Gaza. He says, I will not revoke the punishment. You carried people into exile, a whole people, and delivered them to Edom. So he says, you went after some of God's people, and you sold them into slavery. Not going to let that go. Third one. All right, did I skip one already? Oh, well. Tyre. He says, I'll not revoke the punishment. They delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Remember Jacob and Esau? Edom is primarily the people of Esau. He says, you were related, but you just you got rid of them. Delivered a, or a tire, and then on to tire. I'm already messing this up. Edom, he says, I'll not revoke punishment because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity. He says, you're family, but you did this to them. He says, I, I can't let that go. I'll send a fire. On to the fifth one, the Ammonites. He says, I will not revoke punishment. You ripped open pregnant women in Gilead to enlarge your borders. He says, you, you, you were brutal. And what you did was gruesome. He says, I can't let that go. Now, these other nations around, they aren't pretending to worship God. They aren't acknowledging Jehovah. And yet, they still are coming under God's scrutiny. So when I, I look at you know, our nation even, and I'm going... People will say, well, you know, you can't just impose your Christian values. Well, there's a measure of truth to that, but when we abandon what God has called us to as people, whether it be Christian or non-Christian, there is a punishment that is in store for those that refuse his dictates. And so that's the danger of any government stepping away from a, a basis of what God declares to be good and right. So when we, when we walk into foolishness and we say, well, it's legal, 
that isn't enough in his sight. Well, we as a people said it's okay. That doesn't mean that God is pleased with that and allows it just to flourish. So the danger for a country like ours is, you know, we can argue back and forth regarding Christian roots. But more significant is, what does God say about these issues? And that's a position that you and I need to land on and present and do our best to see through. Whether it takes place or not, well, we don't have control of that. But we can't back away and say it doesn't matter because it does. So when we're looking at these nations and saying, yeah, they didn't pretend to worship Jehovah. They didn't pretend that they were the people of God. Nevertheless, there's a punishment being declared for them because of the way they've lived. And so we want to be careful to say, we will embrace what God embraces. We will reject what he rejects. And that's our message. Goes on to the Ammonites. Again, that three and four thing. He says, I'll not revoke punishment. Okay, I got that one. Next one, Moab. I'll not revoke punishment. He burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I'll send fire on Moab. I don't understand the details of that particular one, but obviously for that day it was something so heinous that a declaration is being made and saying, you're just not going to get away with that. Okay? Finally, he's gone through the nations around him. Now he's starting to deal closer to home, and he goes to Judah, and he makes this declaration, I'll not revoke punishment, they have rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. He says, they had rules from God. They knew what he had covenanted with them. They chose to step away. That's not the declaration made about the other nations, but it's the declaration made about Judah, saying, they, they knew what was going on. God had spoken to them. He'd given the law at Sinai. They had agreed to it, yet they walked away. And God's saying, I am not good with that. I'm not going to leave that alone. So I'll send fire. Uh, and so I'll send fire on Judah. Lastly, then he, had, he addresses the place where he's living, Israel. Little Israel. I'll not revoke punishment. Here's what they're doing. He says, they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor in dust. They turn aside and walk away from the afflicted. So what's it saying? He says, the wealthy are looking at the poor and saying, boy, that's a shame. If they're saying anything. Otherwise, they're ignoring or misusing or building their wealth off of others. He's going, you're not going to get away with that. He says, a man and his father go into the same girl. Again, there's a perversion of morality. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Now, this is kind of addressing the priesthood, and he's saying they, they make themselves wealthy off of others that have have uh, 
have taken a loan, so to speak. Rather than lending freely, they have made themselves wealthy off this. And he says, it's not good. He goes on and says, and in the house of God, they drink wine to those who have been fined. So <laughs> inflict a fine, benefit from it. He's going, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it. He goes on. Now, here's a, he, he goes on regarding Israel, and he says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. He says, I'm the one that gave them the land. It was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to possess the land. So God's saying, you haven't honored me, but I was the one that gave you all this. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and others for Nazarites. The Nazarite was a life, lived a life that was dedicated to the Lord. So he says, I raised up godly people, prophets and Nazarites, but he says, you made the Nazarites drink wine, which was one of the things that they couldn't do, a part of their vows. And you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. So he says, I gave you models to follow. I gave you people that were declaring, and you just said, forget it. Just stop talking. Later in this book, I think it's the seventh chapter, Amos is told, get out of here. He's at Bethel, and he's been prophesying. And the priest there says, go to Judah. Do not prophesy here anymore. Just get out of here. Now, it may well be because he's just prophesied that the king is going to die. And he's also then tells the priest, he says, your wife's going to live as a prostitute when things go down, and all your kids are going to die. Now, I can imagine the man didn't appreciate hearing that. But he's, you know, he's told, we don't want your word. Leave. He says, I will press down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. A full trailer packed down. He says, that's the way your lives are going to be. Just pressed. Tires are going to pop. He says, shall flight, perish from the, flight shall perish from the swift. Here's a writing device again. He's using repetition of, of the same idea. Strong shall, retain, shall not retain his strength. Mighty shall not save his life. He who handles a bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides a horse save his life. He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. So it's saying. I'm going to press down upon you, and it doesn't matter how strong or swift or whatever you're relying on. He says, it's not going to count. It's not going to last. Hear this word of the Lord. Now, here's... <laughs> this is the first of three, hear the word of the Lord. So in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're going to hit the same things. So again, another writing device. Hear the word of the Lord. So this is a phrase that we need to hang on to. So people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known all the families of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. He says, I selected your family special. I, I, 
No one else can make that declaration in this way. So he's calling out to them and said, we had a relationship that no one else had. But you've, you've turned and walked away. You, he says, I can't let that go. So again, we're seeing a, a, a repetition of idea. We're seeing a form that we're not used to writing. But it still is, is pretty clear what he's saying. Here's those seven questions that he, he walks through in the next slide. It says, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? The answer is no. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Apparently, no. <laughs> Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? Well, I don't know, but I'm assuming No. Does a bird fall in a snare on earth when there is no trap for it? That one I know. No. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. So, is a trumpet blown in a city that people are not afraid? Well, again, that's not, we're not used to that, but does a siren go off? It's not anywhere. No. Okay. Just say no. No. <laughs> Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No. So again, that's something that perhaps we ought to spend time thinking about because we're not used to even going there, right? It's, it's worthy of consideration, particularly when you say, okay, I'm not familiar with this book, but it carries some things that I need to be familiar with. That's why we kind of chew our way through some of these. Okay. He says, For the Lord does nothing without revealing the secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, but who can, prophesy? Who can but prophesy? So he's going... There is a word coming out if you're willing to listen. Again, this becomes really important because even in ourselves, we fight so hard to even keep from acknowledging our own failure or our own sins that at times we blind ourselves and refuse and just say, as long as I don't look at it, it doesn't matter. And as a people, we, we tend to do the same thing. Where are things going? Who knows? It's easiest just to ignore it. But Amos is declaring it's there to be heard if we'll pursue it. It's there to be understood if we'll listen. Okay, proclaim to the strongholds of Asha and the strongholds of Egypt. He just points out a couple places and he says, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. He says, you, you neighbors, just go ahead and watch and see this. You need to understand. So he, he's just pointing out Egypt and saying, yeah, you need to hear this. Therefore, says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. 
Now, what's going to happen is Assyria is going to march in and just wipe the land clean. Oddly enough, they regularly burned down the cities after they took them on. They're going to come through the region. Now, they'd already had some successes, and then it's like they had waned. And so the thought of that day would have been, oh, I guess their day's over, thankfully. Now it's our day. And yet, this prophet is saying, uh, it's not over. In fact, it's coming back with a vengeance. It's really interesting to me <laughs> that in this book, there's a phrase where it's like people are going, oh, for the day of the Lord to come. Oh, that God, you know, the day of the Lord, that's what we're looking forward to. And Amos goes, the day of the Lord for this setting is a day of darkness, not of light. And so what he's declaring, he's saying, you have this assumption that you're the people of God and that all this affluence is declaring how much God loves you and it's all going well. And so your assumption is that he's going to take care of all the nations around you and push them down so that the day of the Lord can be known and God takes over the earth through this nation. And Amos is going, in this moment, the day of the Lord is darkness, not light. So it's the, the challenge is going out and saying, you're misinterpreting what's going on right now. And so that's the, the declaration that he's making. Um, okay, here and testify against the house of Jacob. Again, this is another term. Oh. I skipped one, and I, I want to go there. Therefore, says the Lord, an adversary shall come surround the land, bring down your defenses, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues the, from the mouth of the lion two legs and a piece of ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued. I don't see that as a true rescue. <laughs> What he's saying is when a, when a lion grabs a sheep and all you find is just an ear and maybe a couple pieces of leg that are, weren't worth chewing on, he says that's all that's going to be left of this group. Now that's a remnant, true, but you shouldn't look at it as being much. And then he gives another example. He says... Uh, you know, a corner of the couch or a part of the bed, that's all that's left. So maybe it's been like a fire or a whirlwind, and he's going, you know, what's left of the house? Oh, we found a piece of the couch. Good for you. <laughs> Build off of that. Well, that's, that's the picture of what's coming to this people group at this time. So it's, it's not a, a, a good picture. Here and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. On that day I'll punish Israel for his transgressions. I'll punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Bethel. When the two kingdoms separated, Jeroboam 
the one who took the ten tribes and, and that became Israel, talked with his advisors and said, if these people keep going back to Jerusalem, the kingdom will reunite. We've got to do something. So he sets up two golden calves. You know, very <laughs> symbolic of what had happened with the golden calf when they were going through the desert, but also uh, connected to the worship of that region because the, the, the bull was seen as a, a powerful beast. And so he sets up this golden calf and says, this is your God now, worship here. And so these two different places, Bethel's one of those places where that goes up. So what's Amos say? He says, yeah, that thing's going to get cut to pieces. You know, just like, uh, um, just like the, the uh, remnants of the sheep, he says, they're cutting off the horns. The horn was a sign of strength and ability. He says, that's getting chopped off. And then he also says, I'll strike the winter house along with the wealth of the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end. Again, when you have a regular house and you got the summer house and you got the house of ivory, which isn't, um, that's not poetry. King Ahab built a house of ivory. So, and Ahab was part of this Israel. So, you know, it had been a, you know, we're all, it's horrific for us to talk about ivory, right? Because animals are perishing. Well, there would have been a whole lot perishing in that day, enough to build a house with ivory. It was a statement and declaration of wealth. And so he says, uh, that's coming apart. He says, the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. In other words, you've had this incredible wealth. You have this worship in this place, so the, you know, the way you see it. He says, that's, that's falling apart. It's, it's not going to last. I'm going to go a little bit longer. Hear the word, you cows of Bashan. We're on the mountain of Samaria who oppress the poor, crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Politically incorrect, right? Takes on the societal women, calls them cows of Bashan. Uh, yeah, not good. But he just says, uh, you crush the needy for your delight. So they're going to take you away with hooks. You shall go through the breaches. Now, again, I want to step aside for just a minute. Bashan. Bashan was part of the Transjordan area. Remember, it was one of the first areas conquered by Israel before they actually crossed the Jordan River. The people, the tribes, three of the tribes of Israel saw it, said, this is such a wealthy place we want this for our inheritance. Og, king of Bashan, had roughly 60 cities connected to him. And, and it was just an extremely wealthy area. 
And, and so they had flourished, and now Israel has this land, and they have done extremely well. One of the associations with Bashan is the cattle were amazing because they had this incredible pasture. So he attaches it to the societal woman, calls them cows of Bashan. But I, I remind you that uh, Bashan is, is used in, in numerous places, including Psalm 22, when the prophecy about Jesus says, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. You know, there's, a, there's that time, the best of the land lives in this area, and he says, the strongest of that group, he says, that's the enemies that are surrounding me. When we read Psalm 22 of his crucifixion. So again, these associations in the Old Testament, which we, Bashan? <laughs> God, help me, another name. Well, if, if we understand the beauty of it, it, it suddenly gets precious to us. So in this extremely wealthy fertile area, agriculture area, he's saying it's going to come apart. And there are numerous prophets that speak against the place of Bashan. And then it says, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them so that what you love to do, O people of Israel. We're tempted to read Bethel and say, oh, you know, that's precious. They were worshiping? Why would he make this stuff? Bethel's where the golden calf is. And so they've embraced profane worship, and they're very consistent. You know, they've, they've moved aside and just said, you know, who needs Jerusalem? We can do it here. And yet God's going, no, I didn't make that rule. This, this is a, I mean, sacrifices every morning, Ties every three days. That's more consistent than us, even. Thanksgiving of that which is leavened. Proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do. He's going, you're all into this worship, but I'm not. So that's a, a significant warning. Again, you know, that you can be living in affluence. You can be very religious. You can be wandering along and still not fully at peace with God. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth. <laughs> We're all about brushing our teeth. This isn't a positive statement. You have clean teeth because you didn't have anything to eat. Okay, that's, that's the picture here. Lack of bread in your places, yet you did not turn to me. Okay, here's another writing device that he tosses in. I know you've got several already. Here's another one. Yet you did not turn. 
Okay, he's going to camp on this idea for a while. He says, I brought circumstances in front of you. It didn't mean anything to you. Second one, I also withheld rain. Or I sent it on one city and not another. That's one of the arguments that we use. Well, you mean God's involved in it? Well, how come they got rain and we didn't? Well, it's his choice. That's what Amos is declaring about God. So again, sometimes we get into arguments that we don't have a, a strong enough base in Scripture to actually argue appropriately, right? It says, or two or three cities could wander to another city and drink water and you'd not be said, you did not return to me. It says, I did this, but you didn't return. Here's another. I struck you with blight and mildew. On your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, locusts devoured. So blight and locusts, and he says what? You did not return. Again, this writing device. He's giving one illustration, then the next. But he's connecting it with this phrase, you didn't turn back. Here's the fourth one. I sent among you a pestilence. I killed young men and women with a sword. Carried away your horses. Made the stench of your camp go up to your nostrils. Yet you did not return. In other words, when life started falling apart, you didn't say this has a connection to God. In other words, you're just trying to push your way through. says that you got the wrong lesson out of this. I overthrew some of you as when the God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked from the burning, yet you did not return. It says, therefore I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. I'm going to stop there. I think you're wearing out. And uh, I hope to press through the rest of this next week. There is a passage at the end of this book that says, I am going to restore you. <laughs> but it's at the end. We're in the middle. The challenge, I guess, that we should take out of a passage like this is that there's a, a temptation for us just to um, dismiss events or say, can't really figure that out, no need to think about it. Or to just you know, kind of look at things and say, well, obviously my life is blessed, so I must, I must be at peace with God, rather than going to Him and asking. Or to just say, you know, I, if I'm unaware, then I'm innocent. No. <laughs> or even, you know, yeah, I, I, I do the religious thing. Is that a guarantee? There's a, there's a need for us to develop this communication if we truly want to know peace with God. And if we want a certainty about our lives that says, yeah, this is going forward in Him. 
or to even acknowledge surrounding our, our settings and go, I don't necessarily know how God's involved with this, but I have a certainty that he is. And it doesn't matter whether the nation is serving the Lord or not. His hand is over it. When you think of it, how else could it be? If he orchestrates the affairs of our lives, how can he release nations? If he is involved in your life, then he has to be involved at a larger scale on groups of people. But somehow that just kind of fades away from us. A book like Amos, even though we're not used to digging into it, brings us back to these awarenesses. And it's valuable to say, okay, God, speak to me in this moment. You know, you got my attention. Now, what do you want to say? And sometimes he's going to say, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Very happy with you. In other moments, he's going to say, yeah, I love you, but you've got to deal with this issue. And I'm not letting you escape it until you do. Both of those are the goodness of our God speaking into our lives. So he brings a prophet even though they didn't want to hear it. But the goodness of God is at least declaring this is what's up. And then finally, Amos is able to look far enough in the future and say, well, even those pieces, parts, that seems to be all that's left of your life, yeah, he's going to use that to rebuild He's going to restore it in a way that you didn't dream possible. And sometimes you walk through those times. You're going, all that's left is corner of the couch. But it's enough for him to use. So anyway, praise to the Lord. We'll hit this again next week. Um, I hope to finish it. I'm not sure that that'll happen. We'll see. Thank you, Lord, for your word that speaks life to us and has value and opportunity for us to be transformed by it. Guide our thoughts as we walk through this book, we pray. Amen. A couple things. Um, if you've been reading through this and are walking with me and you're going, you know, should read this and try to figure it out some. Um, I'd encourage you in the next couple weeks just go through it simply because it'll be fresh in your mind. But also, if, if you're looking for a, a simple guide, obviously online you can find anything you're looking for. If you want a study Bible, uh, the ESV puts out a really excellent one. Um, it's a fairly accurate translation. It doesn't read particularly well. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't enjoy it that way, but it's the notes in that particular study Bible are excellent, and I'd recommend that. Um, beyond that, I just, um, I'd encourage you to just, uh, maybe in this moment you're saying, you know what, I've kind of lived with just an assumption that everything's okay, but I'm not sure then maybe that's time to pray with someone and, and just say, God, uh, I want to know that I'm at peace in this moment. Or maybe this has brought up something that you've been ignoring and you're going, I can't ignore this any longer. 
And so it's appropriate then to settle that. And if you need to bring someone else into that equation, this would be a good place for that as well. So let's keep that in mind. I want to pray for God's blessing on you. Uh, it'd be nice if there's no rain today. That way I'm not fighting you for space to sleep on that couch of Jerry's. But uh, I'm sure there'll be a batch of people out there anyway. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy your hand in their lives. I pray as each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak to others. I pray that you will enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural, I ask. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.